Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And in studio today, we have a man you might remember from Becca's season of The Bachelorette. Hopefully you've forgotten from (laughs) Bachelor in Paradise. But I know him as my former roommate and good friend, Blake Horseman. Hello. In studio. I love that. (laughs) It's a cool studio too, guys. It's really cool. I've been like Little Miss Handy Dandy. I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's coming along. And It looks great. Fake it till you make it, right? Amen. Amen. But now we got to get a little intense because this is not your podcast where we just got to talk about reality TV. (laughs) We are going to talk about a little bit heavier subject because when you were on the show, you had a segment during your hometown and you discussed the horrible event that happened there during your senior year. And it's an experience that unfortunately you tragically share with far too many students and staff and families across this country. I don't think there is anyone who grew up around the time that we did. Yes, I'm a little bit older, but we won't go into that. Who was not aware of April 20th, 1999, the shooting at Columbine High School when Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold killed 12 students and a teacher and injured over 20 others. I honestly remember hearing about this way up in my tiny town in Alaska, and I remember it as just such a shock. It seemed like this can't honestly be happening. I was 12 years old when it happened, and I just couldn't understand who would want to do this and how someone could have that much hatred in their heart that they could plan to literally execute their peers. I know it's been debunked now about them being part of this you know, trench coat mafia, but for years after when I was in school, if anyone, and I lived in Alaska, it's pretty cold. You need some heavy jackets, but if someone wore a coat that even resembled a trench coat, immediately I was suspicious of them and it was just so terrifying but what was it like here because we know Columbine is in Colorado what was it like when you first heard about this yeah so not only you know obviously it's Columbine in Colorado but it's only maybe a 40 minute drive from where I grew up so very close hit very close to home obviously Um, I'll never forget I remember I got picked up from the bus stop I was like 10 I got picked up from the bus stop my mom picked me up and she was crying and I didn't at the time really understand what was happening but she sat us down and you know kind of explained you know what happened and actually crazy there's a crazy connection my grandpa who was a Lakewood high school football coach his quarterback went on to be the coach at Columbine and was the coach at Columbine in 99. And he's still there, actually. Um, And so it really hit close to home. And one of the players my grandpa coached, his son was actually Isaiah, who was killed in the shooting. So we went to everything. We went to the funerals. We went to each um, like wake, individual wake. We went to the big one. So it hit really close to home when I was a kid. My grandpa knew, you know, multiple people involved. And so, yeah, it was it was one of those things where you never think, you know, it'll happen to you or around you or be close to you or you'll know somebody that did it. It's tragic because, unfortunately, seven years later, after the deadly shooting at Columbine, on September 27th, 2006, a 53-year-old man named Dwayne Morrison, who is believed to be living in his Jeep, was seen by students outside of Platte Canyon High School in the small town of Bailey, Colorado. At approximately 11.30 a.m., Dwayne donned a blue hoodie, entered the school armed with multiple guns and a backpack, which the contents at the time he entered the building were unknown. Blake, this was your high school Mm -hmm. and your senior year, and I know it's been quite a few years since either of us attended high school, but take us back to that morning. What do you remember about that day before all of this happened? 
So, I mean, honestly, I mean, it was just a normal day. You know what I mean? Like I was preparing for, it was our, not our homecoming, it was just a football game, but a big football game that's that Friday or that Saturday. The weather was great, you know, and like towards the end of September is always good. You know, you never know. But I remember thinking, just getting excited for the football game. Yeah, it was just a normal day. It's my understanding that when Morrison entered the high school, he went to room 206, where Sander Smith taught honors English. Obviously, he walks in. She asks him, like, what the hell are you doing in my classroom? And at that point, he pulled out one of his handguns that he had with him and demanded that all the male students, the teacher, and most of the female students leave the room. As they left the room, witnesses say they heard a gunshot. Thankfully, this shot did not hit anyone. Seven girls remained with Morrison in the room with him, lined up one by one against the chalkboard. School officials were obviously notified that there was a gunman in the building and a code white was issued over the intercom, which meant the school needed to go into immediate lockdown. What many don't know is that you probably recognize the voice that came over the intercom. Yes, yes. Uh, At the time, so this was, I believe it was second period. Uh, I was editor-in-chief of the school television show. So we were in the computer lab and... Uh, in a crazy turn of events, we have pods in, in our high school. So I don't know if you know, know what that is. You walk into a pod and then there's like four classrooms. So you walk through the door and then there's four classrooms and two are open or three are open, I think, and two are closed. And yeah, he went into the closed room with the door. And I was actually supposed to be in the classroom next to it where the bullet went into. And that's where we film because it was an empty classroom when we would film for the television. But that morning we were running late. And I remember being in the computer lab and over the intercom, I hear my mom's voice, code white. You know, my mom worked at the high school. So I had run these halls of the high school since I was like, you know, six or seven. I knew the teachers super well growing up. Um, and I remember looking at uh, Mr. Miller, who was my teacher at the time. Big guy. He's like 6'5", like a really big guy. Rugby player, really tough. And I could tell something was wrong in my mom's voice. Like it was not a normal, like I, she was cracking. It was complete panic. Like I could mm-hmm. feel it. I could, I could hear it. And I looked at my teacher and his face just went white. And uh, I gave him goosebumps. And um, I remember it was me and two other... It was it was a lot of females in that class. Um, but it was me and like two other guys. And we began stacking chairs, um, taping windows closed, stacking chairs in front of the door. And we realized... My teacher thankfully realized the computer lab doesn't have a lock. It's like one of the rooms in the, in the school that doesn't have a lock. So we were like, we got to get out of this room. Like we can't be in a room that doesn't have a lock. So we ended up actually running across the hall and going into the eighth grade pod and hiding in a classroom there. We were able to lock the door, stack desks, stack uh, chairs in front of the door. Um, And then you just wait, which is the hardest part, right? You have no idea what's going on. Did you know what Code White meant? I didn't. I started to realize what was happening after we started stacking things. But even then... You don't like I remember sitting in that room with like a bunch of, you know, the classmates and friends and younger, you know, eighth graders. I was a senior at the time and just everybody's just kind of like freaking out, you know, and certain people are a little more calm in that situation and others are in a complete panic. I mean, I will admit like I, I and weirdly enough, like I am calm in situations like that. Like I don't really panic. And so I was one of the few like the teachers would talk to me and then I'd have to like because I was a senior also and I'd have to like try and calm down students and kind of explain what was happening. Um but yeah, it was something I never thought, obviously, you know, I'd be a part of. And just the the not knowing is the scary part. Like, you don't know how many shooters. You don't know where they are. You don't mm-hmm. know if they've already shot people. We weren't hearing gunshots. So we knew, like, we heard people running up and down the hall. And at one point, I did we did see, like, a SWAT member with a giant, you know, machine gun, like a uh, M16 or A4, whatever you want to call it. 
the waiting was really hard because you just sit there. And we were probably, I was probably waiting in that room for two, maybe three hours. Um, and I want to remind you too, my mom and my sister were in the building. So that was also like, it was hard not knowing where they were and like what was going on with them. So it was hard. I can't even imagine. So you're sitting in that room. It's you, other seniors, your teacher, and a whole bunch of eighth graders. Are you guys under desks? I mean, where, like mm. physically, where are you guys in this room? Yeah, so this room had two doors. This is one of those few rooms where it had a door into the room and then a door out the other side into the pod. So the one we were able to lock both doors and stack desks and tables against it. And then we would hide. We were all kind of grouped together in the far corner away from both doors. And yeah, we just literally huddled together. The older kids, me, and then, you know, the teachers and stuff were kind of on the outside, um, ready to fight, basically, you know, which is crazy. And, I, you know, like I said, I'm really close to a lot of the teachers. And I know multiple teachers, you know, had kids like holding, like there was a teacher, a really good friend of mine. He was, I was the best man at his wedding. His dad was my English teacher. And he he happened to have like bats in his classroom because he's a big sports guy and they were all signed and stuff. Right. And he was handing bats to students. He was handing like just things to students. People were handing like pens and things to students to have to fight their way. Uh, and one of the craziest things, I don't know if you read about this, um, but the shooter walked around the high school um, for quite some time, talked to students. Like he was acting like a parent. So he would, you know, and, and that's like, I grew up, it's a small town. It's not unusual for a parent to walk into the school and go and try and find their kid. Well, and just to clarify for listeners, this is before yes. he obviously took anyone hostage. But yes, he was talking to kids in the parking lot outside mm -hmm. and then came into the building. No one questioned him. Mm -hmm. And especially, I imagine that hoodie also made him appear a lot younger. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in a hoodie now. Like, it doesn't really show, like, body type right or mm -hmm. anything. It's kind of indiscreet and unnoticeable. Totally in a backpack. Like, right. that's not unusual either. You'd look you like know? a student yeah, walking exactly. in unless someone like saw your face. And, you know, a lot, a few of my friends talked to him. Like, a couple of my friends have talked to him, you know, and they had guilt for a really long time, obviously, you know. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seemed like he knew he had done some kind of recon, if you will, because he picked the one room with no windows outside. The smallest teacher, um, Smith, Miss Smith, was 5'2", tiny, tiny, um, and one door. So it was like, he, if it was random, it's insane luck because he literally picked the one classroom that was incre incredibly difficult to breach. And the one teacher who, not the one teacher, but a teacher who literally just could not fight back. You know what I mean? Well, I can tell you doing the research. I don't know about the actual room itself if that was mm -hmm. luck of the draw or not but we'll find out as i tell a little bit more about this story that he certainly had planned this yeah. okay so you're in this room your mom's over the intercom your sister's somewhere god knows where did you because we were around when cell phones were just like mm -hmm. <laughs> you play like ping pong and snake mm -hmm. and that was about yeah. it mm -hmm. did you have a way of contacting them while you're still in the building so no um i did have a cell phone yeah i was like a you know one of those flip phones we just didn't have first of all we're in the mountains to begin with so don't have great service and we just don't have service in the high school so couldn't contact anybody the last thing i heard from my mom was the code white that was it i can't imagine what my mom was going through knowing that we're in the high school and then even further like my dad my dad at the time was working he's a he still is a postman here in denver and he was in denver when he got he either got a call i can't really remember he either got a call or he heard about it on the radio um and literally dropped everything and he said he was going like 120 miles up the mountain you know because it's a 40 minute drive from his work to 
to my high school and just, you know, was going like 120 miles up the mountain. Like I can't imagine what he was going through. No, That's his, his whole, whole family. family was in this school. So yeah, in that way, like I, I was a bit, you know, it was a unique experience because my whole family, it was my sister, my mom. And then, you know, I can't imagine what my dad was feeling. So scary stuff. So you said you were in the room for maybe a couple of hours. How did you know you were even safe to leave that room again? Yeah. So um, what's crazy too is only a few weeks before the local police had done a drill, a school shooting drill. Mm -hmm. So weirdly enough, it was fresh for them. And what happens at least is, I don't know if this is still the procedure, but they slide a badge under the door. So you, you wait, they knock. And of course you hear a knock and you're like, oh, good God, you know, like you don't know who it is. And then they slide the badge under the door to show that they're officers. Um, and then we opened the door, we moved everything. We peeked out the door and it was like three officers and we got between them and we went out the back of the school. And my school actually has like the new school, which was an, was only a few years old at the time. And then we have like our old school where the gymnasiums are sure. and the athletic director and all that, all the athletics. So we went out the back door and we walked outside. I remember walking out of the back of the school and we came around and that's when I realized like just how serious it was. There mm -hmm. were so many cop cars, fire engines. We saw snipers up on roofs, um, cops just everywhere, news vans everywhere. We were getting filmed as we were walking and we walked over into the other school, into the gymnasium where all the students were. And that's where I remember seeing my mom um, and my sister and we all kind of came together like in the middle of the gymnasium and just like hugged out and we're crying and you know we still didn't exactly know what was going on my mom knew a little bit more than us but we just all got together we were just crying and hugging each other you know in that sense I was one of the lucky ones because I got to see my family there in that moment a little before a lot of people got to see their family but that was just such a you know just such an incredible moment of like relief um, you know and just yeah, I can't, it's hard to put into words because imagine not knowing, you know, there's a shooter loose, you don't know where family is and then you see them and you just run into each other's arms. And so that was like, you know, a huge moment in that gymnasium. Oh, you're going to make me cry because <laughs> I know your mom and sister. Yeah, so yeah this, exactly. Yeah. I, I can picture this. Mm -hmm. And your mom is such a mama's bear. She's like yeah, oh, yeah. mom of the year <laughs> award. Yeah. She moms me and I'm not even her child. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I can just imagine mm -hmm. not only the relief for you, but for yeah. her. We now know what was going on inside room 206, and it's heartbreaking to say the very least. He held the girls hostage and sexually assaulted them, pulling one girl at a time into the interior of the room. Police began hostage negotiations with him, and by 1.45 p.m., four of the girls had been released. It was during this time that 16-year-old Emily Keyes was able to reply to a text from her parents asking, Are you okay? Emily responded, I love you guys. Negotiations between police and Dwayne Morrison started to stall around 3.30 p.m., and Dwayne, using the girls as his voices, told police that something would happen at 4 p.m. He had told police that he had three pounds of C4 in his possession, presumably in that backpack. Tragically, when Jefferson County SWAT team burst into the room at 3.45 p.m., obviously heeding this 4 o'clock deadline, Morrison, using the two remaining hostages as human shields, began firing at the police. One of the hostages was able to run, and police got her to safety. But tragically, Emily Keyes was shot by Dwayne Morrison. He then turned the gun on himself as police returned fire. Dwayne Morrison was pronounced dead on the scene from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, 
and heartbreakingly, 16-year-old Emily Keys would not survive. It turns out there was not explosives in that backpack. Instead, the backpack contained duct tape, handcuffs, knives, a stun gun, rope, scissors, sorry guys to tell you this, massage oil, sex toys, and numerous rounds of ammunition. Later, police would find three more guns on the property, two rifles and one revolver hidden in the surrounding area of Plate High School. All of these were traced back to Dwayne Morrison. A day after the shooting occurred, a member of Dwayne's family would receive a 14-page suicide letter that had been postmarked the morning of the shooting. In it, he indicated a very troubled childhood, a history with alleged abuse, and detailed the depression that he was experiencing. He also had a criminal history that involved harassment, and honestly, that case is just bizarre. It just shows where his head was at the time. He was harassing a Harley-Davidson worker. And it would be discovered that he had previously filed an insurance claim and received compensation for it, reporting that he had guns stolen from him. These were the guns that would be recovered from the scene at the school. Now, I know they obviously shut down your school after this for about a week, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a week or two weeks. I can't really remember. But when reading this, I was really shocked to read that the superintendent told the news crew that the day that your school reopened, only 10 kids were absent that day what was it like walking back into the school after this yeah i mean one of the coolest things about my community is the way that we rallied um you know everybody rallied around us kids around the the keys family um i remember we had obviously you know a large funeral celebration of life for emily um and people from all over the world came to this um, it was incredible, and everybody came together, and uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, a lot of people from Columbine, a lot of people who had been through it mm-hmm. in 99, students, teachers, parents came up to support. Um, we created a quilt that's still hanging in my library, because um, that room actually overlooks the library, um, and it's a quilt where all of us students, you know, we signed it, and we left little notes on it. Um, so just the way the community came together to make us students feel safe again. Um, first of all, to process what had happened. Because um, I remember I didn't really, it didn't really hit me. It hit me when I saw my mom and my sister, but it didn't really hit me what had happened to Emily and like the students in that room until I'd gotten home later that night. And I remember seeing the stretcher um, from a helicopter video of the stretcher coming out of the school. And I remember just breaking down and just like bawling because it kind of hit me what the other students were going through and what, you know, had happened to Emily. I think you have to give yourself a little bit of grace there because obviously we talk about like fight or flight and survival mode. Mm -hmm. When you're in a situation like that, it is survival. Mm -hmm. And then so it would make sense that until later, your brain wouldn't even allow you to process Mm -hmm. what, what the emotions were for the other people involved, what their experience was like, because you're just trying to survive the unknown. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. But I mean, to me, growing up, school was awesome. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. It was a safe place. Mm -hmm. And so to walk back in that day where that feeling of safety, especially I imagine even more so for you, because your whole family was at that school Mm -hmm. at all times, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get a tummy ache. I go to the nurse's office. You go talk to (laughs) your mom. (laughs) Literally, yeah. I would hang out with my mom at lunch sometimes. You know, I'd like go out instead of going to like recess. I'd go hang out with my mom. You know what I mean? So how, when that is overnight stripped away from you, do you walk back into that school and allow it 
or learn to allow it to be a place of safety again? Yeah. Um, one of the, the hardest parts was they actually chained the door to that room. Um, so there was a chain on the room for the rest of the year. So every time you walked by it, obviously you had a sense, I mean, just eerie feeling. Mm -hmm. It was always a constant reminder, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but it was just, just one of those things, you know, like I would never walk by it by myself, you know, I'd always have somebody, you know, or a group of us would walk by, um, I'd avoid it. I'd go all the way to the other side of the school and walk up the stairs to avoid it. But yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing and the best thing my community and my school did and the district did was just always have therapists, people we could talk to at all times. And teachers, I'll never forget, it was later in that year, the Virginia Tech shooting happened. Mm -hmm. And the teachers, we, we every, you know, because the next day, obviously it happened the next day, we sat down, everybody sat down in like the auditorium, I think it was or whatever, and was like, let's talk about this. Like, I'm sure this brought up old wounds. I'm sure this was, you know, hard. So we just sat down and we talked. And so in that sense, I, I hats off to the people involved, you know, in organizing that and, and really caring for us because uh, they were able to make it feel like a safe environment, which is not easy. On the show, going back to another traumatic <laughs> experience, um, I actually rewatched it last night. It's apparent that it still was impacting you while you were sitting there talking to Becca and being back in that environment. Obviously, there's way too many people that go through this similar thing. But what effect did this have after high school, going into your adult life? Like, what effect did this have ongoing for mm -hmm. your mental health? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, I mean, on the show, it was, weirdly enough, the producers didn't. It was never something I wanted to talk about. Well, like, it was never something I wanted to be the reason I got on the show. You know, sure. who's got these, You didn't like, want it to be your story. Right. I didn't want it to be my story. So... A lot of people probably don't know that, but I did not tell a soul about it. Nobody in the production team, nobody, the cast knew about it. Mm -hmm. I hadn't talked about it. And I remember we were sitting in, in the Bahamas and um, we were trying to figure out what to do for my hometown. I just, you know, there's the next day after I got the rose, go to hometowns. And I had this idea. I wanted to go on this hike up Mount Bailey, which is a, a mountain by me and quick hike, 45 minutes to an hour hike, nothing crazy and have a picnic or whatever. And they sent a scouting team out and they were like, are you fucking crazy? Like, <laughs> they were like, we got to the top and almost threw up. They were like, we just, we can't haul everybody up here. You go to the Bahamas, yeah, like two yeah. mile high yeah, elevation. Exactly, yeah. They're like, are you fucking crazy? So I was like, okay, we won't do that. And it worked out because it ended up blizzarding. So at the time I was like, you know, I spent a lot of my life in this high school. And, you know, I grew up in this high school, in the halls of this high school. My mom worked there. I, obviously, something very dramatic happened to me and they didn't know what it was. And I told them, you know, if I, if I go and talk about this school, I can't just gloss, gloss over the fact, you know, this huge moment in my life that molded me into the man I am today. I can't just pretend it didn't happen. So I would have to talk about it. Um, and they were like, okay, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you feel like it's something you have to talk about, let's do it. But they're like, that's pretty dark and, and deep. And we don't really want your hometown to just be very like, you know, deep and, and dark. And so they were like, why don't we do a concert, surprise concert? We're bringing Betty Who, Becca's. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's fantastic. But I was very nervous to talk about it. I was very nervous to talk about it. Not only because I hadn't really talked about it in a long time, but I wasn't sure how people would react. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how people I went to high school would react, how random strangers on the internet would react. Because um, it is a touchy subject. Um, there are a lot of things, you know, Obviously, we're still dealing with today that we were dealing with back then. Yep. Um, and so I wasn't sure. I thought maybe some of my high school students, you know, or people I went to high school with would be like, oh, he's using it for cloud or he's using it to be famous and that kind of thing. And so I tried to approach it more about like how proud I was of my community 
and how they rallied around us as students and us as, as a school um, and how the state of Colorado rallied around us. Like I said, you know, all these Columbine students and teachers came up and talked to us. And so I wanted to make it more about the way the love, um, you know, I have for my family and for my community growing up um, rather than about the shooter. And I want to make about, you know, Emily. And, and I think something that's important to talk about is the way Emily Key's family, uh, what they've done. Like, I can't imagine being in their shoes, obviously, but they've created this incredible foundation, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the I Love You Guys Foundation. They travel the world and speak to schools, to mass shooting tragedies, to victims of these mass shooting tragedies. They, you know, and they've, they've really taken this... I don't know if I would say platform, but they've taken this opportunity to help others. What they've been able to do to help others is just actually incredible. So when I went on the show, I wanted to really speak to that. And actually, surprisingly enough, there was only one student who reached out um, and was like, you know, you're like, you know, you're using this using as your sob yeah, story. So using yeah. this your sob story, using this to get followers. So actually, it was a very uh, supportive. And I actually spoke to the Keys family afterwards. They, they you know, they DM me and I think inbox me through Facebook. And so it was actually something that I'm glad I did. I was very nervous, but I'm so glad I did. And like I said, you know, it molded me into the man I am now. And I think the way it's changed me for, I don't know about the worst, but I would say, you know, now I'm, I'm obviously very cognizant of when I go into, to, you know, certain buildings, rooms, I know where the exits are. Um, I'm always looking for suspicious people, you know, and it's, it's not a great way to live, but at the same time, like, that's just how I'm, wired now mm-hmm. um you know not long after there was the shooting at the uh, movie theater here in aurora in colorado for some reason colorado has so many mass shootings um so yeah anytime i'm in movie theaters you know i look for exits i'm in schools i'm in restaurants i know where the exits are it's just something now that I, i'm very aware of and i always you know more or less keep my head on a swivel it's just something now that i hope nobody i honestly hope nobody has to you know live like that or it feels like they need to live like that but going through what i did it is something um I, I deal with now. And and as far as my family, you know, I think it definitely brought me and my sister a lot closer together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a usual sibling relationship before and, you know, we loved each other, but it was a lot of like, she was, you know, I was 18. She was 15, I think, or someone at the yeah. time, you know, freshman. <laughs> I was a senior. All my friends thought she was hot. So it was like, yeah, you know, it was like all that. It was horrible. Um, but that definitely brought us a lot closer because, you know, going through something like that together and, to really understand how much you love somebody, you almost have to almost lose them. And I almost lost, you know, my family. And so brought my family a lot closer, me and my sister for sure, a lot, a lot, a lot closer. Um, and so, yeah, I think it just, it, it was something, it was just an eye opener for me as an 18 year old. Many people don't get eye openers like that in their life. But me as an 18 year old, I was like, okay, like life can be snatched from you in an instant. And um, an experience can completely change your outlook on life in an instant. So it was kind of just like, not to be too cliche, but like live every day like it's your last. And that's something I've taken to heart. And I don't, you know, always live like that every day, but I try to remind myself. Yeah, I've seen you have some movie <laughs> marathons in yeah, bed all yeah, day yeah. long. <laughs> but I try to remind myself of that and that, you know, your life can change in an instant and to tell the ones you love to love them all the time. I think... As you know, obviously, I can understand that, but from a different angle. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, as a teenager, we're all invincible. You don't think about your own mortality, right? Mm-hmm. Because you look at your parents and you're like, they're 40 and 50. Like, oh, my God, they're so old. <laughs> and totally. then you realize it's not that old and yeah. we don't have that much longer. But you just aren't really aware of time, 
I don't think, especially in high school. It's very much live for the moment, which is great until that is absolutely rocked, like you said, by the experience of either losing someone or going through something like this that's so traumatic and is so tangible of this isn't forever. On the first episode of this podcast, I talked with my sister, as you know, about her experience with PTSD following the murder of her roommate and his friend. And she spoke about feeling a sense of guilt because she was struggling. She talked about, I didn't die. My family member didn't die. So I should be okay. After all, she had survived and others hadn't. Did you feel any sense of survivor's guilt of like, why her? Yeah. So I would say definitely the why her aspect of things and why us, like why Platte Canyon, why that classroom, why like I had, you know, I, I had two friends, two of the females who were held out of the six, I believe it was very close with still am close with. So it was, it was a lot of just like, why? And as you know, a high schooler, you do feel invincible and you feel like you are on top of the world. And so it was just like, it brought you back to earth like it, it did it was like a ground shattering like like why us he had no affiliation with the school mm-hmm. it wasn't a student it wasn't an angry parent it wasn't it was just like why um and i think that was the question that a lot of us had and you know we w- we would ask the therapists and to other people and nobody had the answer like mm-hmm. it's not there's no answer to that so for a long time i think i don't know if i would call it survivor's guilt like at least for me maybe you know obviously there's people in the room i can't even imagine or the the people who even were in the room earlier and were were, you know taken out um but for me it was just it was more the question of just like why us why emily why our community it's a tiny mountain town you Mm -hmm. know so yeah i guess that was the biggest and like i said nobody nobody knew the answer and nobody has the answer and still doesn't you know so that was something you had to grapple with um that there is sometimes it's just because like sometimes it just happens and you can't explain why and so that's hard as an 18 year old to Mm -hmm. not have an answer to that question up to that you know you're in school and you're getting all the answers and everybody has the answers and you're looking to your peers for answers your teachers your parents for answers and nobody has it so that was it's interesting it's different what do you think has helped you the most during that time to recover i mean it would have to be my parents um my family friends as well but i think more than anything it was it was my parents, the conversations they had with us. Because, again, it's, it's not something you can, like, grapple. Like, you just lost, you know, a student, a friend. And you see how it's impacted people you look up to. Mm-hmm. Coaches. My best friend, one of my best friends at the time, so very close with him. His dad was the sheriff. He was the one who made the decision to blow in the wall. Um, and, you know, act instead of wait to that, that 4 o'clock deadline. So, like, seeing... What his family was going through and seeing what parents were going through and i'll never forget when we got bused from the high school to our elementary school which wasn't too far away 15 minutes away where parents were and looking out the windows and seeing parents just crying like these people that you look up to and these people that you admire broken broken and i three of my football coaches were were cops and one of them was one of the first ones in that room and so it's just like seeing these people broken and then trying to comprehend like like will we be okay like and so my parents i remember having conversations with them of being like no you won't be the same again Mm -hmm. you're not going to be the same and that's okay and i think that was the biggest thing was like i didn't feel like i needed to be pretend it didn't happen i didn't need to bury it i didn't need to act 
like it hadn't changed me and like I was back to normal because it was okay for it to change me and it was okay to not be the same after that and to not bury it and to, to talk about it when you know when you feel necessary so I think that was that was really big something that my parents did and I think it made a big difference um, in the way I I kind of like navigated through that and you said they had counselors and therapists at the school and all of that did you take part in that I mean, everybody had to at least have one conversation with the counselor. So I did do that. But after that, no, I, I didn't. I, I Honestly, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know if I just at the time was like... I don't need yeah, it. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. It was like, <laughs> oh, no, I don't need that. You know, I'm a football player and like that, that kind of whole thing. Yeah. Um, or if it was just like I, I felt like I had enough support at home. As of May of this year... There has been over 386 school shootings in the United States just since Columbine. The Washington Post estimated that over 356,000 students alone have witnessed gun violence at their school. Obviously, these are disgusting statistics to sit with. But what would you say to those who are still in the beginning stages of healing from this trauma? Um be patient. I think that's the biggest thing is like, you don't need to be okay. Like I said, you know, you don't need to suddenly go back to the way things were. I'd say be patient, heal, uh, talk, communicate, don't bury it. Don't let it impact you to the sense where like 10 years from now, you know, you more or less like suddenly, like it suddenly hits you. Yeah, exactly. It bubbles up. You have almost like a quote unquote relapse. Like just speak about it. You know, if you need to go to therapy, don't be afraid to go to therapy. If you need to speak To me, DM me, you know, find a way to communicate with me. There was just a school shooting not long ago here in Denver. A friend of mine's daughter was there and I did DM her and was like, if you need to speak, you know, obviously I've been through this. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. That's the biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. There's a lot of people out there that want to help. For myself, someone who hasn't gone through this, but I have watched this on the news over and over and over again. We all have, whether it's a mass shooting, a school shooting, It can feel as a viewer that you're completely helpless, that yes, you can go to someone's GoFundMe and donate money, but like that doesn't feel like enough. And obviously thoughts and prayers are certainly not enough, Mm -hmm. but if someone wants to take action, like what did you see going on in your community that actually felt helpful in the days following this? Mm, That's a good one. Just showing up. Like, I think that's the biggest thing is just being there. Not necessarily, you know, I remember it wasn't over the top. Like, I remember the sense of everything at the time was like people were obviously sad, angry, um, grieving, confused, grieving. But at the same time, like all these people who had, had come to Bailey to help, they weren't over the top. They weren't talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. They just kind of let it happen. They just kind of let us talk when we needed to. There was just a hug that we needed. They gave us that. So just showing up like i think it you don't necessarily need to like go over the top just be there and and if somebody needs something be there for them and do that um so i think the biggest thing is just like showing up showing up for for the people that you know like thoughts and prayers and everything like i get that's a lot that only you know sometimes that's only people feel like they can do but there's more you know and some of that is just being there just just being there i've talked about grief when i've been interviewed on different podcasts and i've always said like there is no perfect words for these type of situations because to have the words to make sense of it would mean that these are not senseless acts, right? So it's okay to not have the right words to say, just stand alongside someone. Yep, exactly. Exactly. 
On this podcast, we always want to keep the victims and the survivors of these tragedies at the forefront. So I want to touch on what Blake was talking about earlier and how the memory of Emily Keys lives on today. The nonprofit I Love You Guys Foundation was started in 2006, the same year that she passed, by Emily Keys' parents, John Michael and Ellen Keys, gaining its name from the last text message they would ever receive from their daughter. The aim of that foundation is to serve the lives of students, administrators, public safety experts, families, and first responders through the development and training of school and community safety and family reunification programs. Blake touched on this earlier, but to give some stats of the amazing things they're doing, these programs have been implemented by over 30,000 schools, agencies, and organizations across the United States, Canada, and 11 other countries around the world. All of these programs are available at no cost. So Blake and I talked a little bit about what can you do. Here's an option. Mm -hmm. If you have the means, you are more than welcome to go to their website, iloveyouguys.org. I'll link it in the show notes. Either educate yourself on it, donate your time, donate financially if you're in a position to. But I think that's a really amazing thing to come out of such a dark, dark time. Yeah, I can't speak highly enough of the Keys family. Um, and one of the saddest things about um, that text message is she's, you know, she was able to send the text message while she was in the school, but like I said, there was no service. And so when they got her stuff out of the school, the text message finally sent. So it was after Emily Ugh. had already passed, and so it was almost like a, you know, a message from from yeah. beyond. It's just such a perfect name for that that foundation, and it represents the Keys family and Emily. And so, yeah, please, 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 please. If you have the means, um, the time, anything like that um, to donate, because like I said, they're doing some incredible things. I'm going to end now that we can sop up our tears. I'm going <laughs> to see if I can get through this next part without crying. <laughs> I want to conclude this on a bit of a personal note. You've talked about how you've struggled with your mental health, not only since this event, but as your friend, I know some stuff that's gone on behind the scenes where you've mm -hmm. definitely struggled. You've been through a lot of tough things, some of which the public know about and some that you've faced privately. Mm -hmm. But I just want to applaud you a little bit because <laughs> I've seen you go through all of this and overcome these experiences. But not only I am going to cry, no, you made me cry. <laughs> but not only overcome them and like continue on, but you're doing things that I could never imagine doing. And every time I see you go up on stage or do things like that, like if you don't know, Blake is a pretty kick-ass DJ. <laughs> You'll end up sweating and shaking your tail off, but it's a lot of fun. But for me, I'm thinking like he went through this traumatic experience in these crowds and now you're up on stage in front of all these crowds. And we talk a lot, you and I, about full circle moments. Mm -hmm. So it's just been really great to witness mm, that. Thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> okay. You cry the emotion. <laughs> I don't think I've ever cried on a podcast. So I just love you. <laughs> I love you thanks too. For being my you. friend, and thanks for letting me bring nine puppies into your house. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope when people listen to this, at the very least, it serves as a reminder that there are so many people impacted by these events that we see as headlines or little scrolling things at the bottom of our news feeds. And these are things that people carry privately with them for the rest of their lives. And I also know that by sharing your story, it's a message of hope for life after tragedy. So thank you. 
No, thank you, Elise. Thank you, guys. All right, I'm going to do my wrap-up. I'm sweating. Blake, where can people find you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can find me on all the social media platforms at balake.h. That's Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all of those. You can look at my website (laughs) that Elise created. It's actually freaking incredible. Blake Horseman dot com for any of my upcoming dj events things like that um, i post a lot on my instagram about my dj sets um and yeah i mean i'm headed out this fourth of july or the next two weeks i've got eight shows in 11 days so staying busy staying busy so yeah keep your eye out if i'm at a you know in a city near you come on out and we'll have some fun together I love it. All right. Well, you can follow our podcast on Instagram at A Case of the Sunday Scaries or on YouTube at Case of the Sunday Scaries. It means the world to us when you rate, write a review or share an episode with a friend. I hope you will all join me next week. I'm diving into a heavy case. Maybe Blake will have you come back on and I'll like, tell you a tragedy and you can just yeah, sit yeah, there. <laughs> but in the meantime, be kind to one another. And remember, there are many people that carry scars you will never see. But as always, until then. <laughs>